0: darkness you are experiencing during this Christmas season, maybe it's the darkness of divorce, maybe it's the darkness of depression, maybe it's the darkness of death, maybe it's the darkness of of singleness, of of loneliness, The, the darkness of infertility, the darkness of addiction, whatever darkness you are walking in today, we have a savior, we have a light that is good enough, he is personal enough, not just to step into your greatest darkness, but also into your lesser darkness, but not only is he personal, he is also powerful,
1: Merry Christmas and welcome to Mid-South Viewpoint. Hi, I'm Byron Tyler. You know, as we draw close to that big day, it's easy to get so busy with the parties, tradition, and gift buying that we just want to get it over and return to normal again. Normal for many is too painful. You're hoping that the tinsel and the songs of the season may spark some excitement, but things have gotten too complicated. At work, a failed relationship, or the death of a loved one. Christmas just isn't the same for you. I'm hoping today's show will help narrow our focus a bit and put into perspective what it's all about. I recently heard Will Franco share what Christmas is ultimately about. Will is the lead pastor at Mission Church in Memphis. Now, This particular message was pulled from a series called Rescue Mission and is what I would like to share with you on today's Mid-South Viewpoint. Let's hear now from Pastor Will Franco.
0: What is Christmas ultimately about? Because Christmas, yeah, Christmas is about family. It's about gifts. It's about tradition. Christmas is about a lot of things. But in its essence, Christmas is a rescue mission. It was the first step that Jesus took in his rescue mission in order to rescue you and me. And if he is the rescuer, then guess what? That makes us the rescued. We are starting the series by looking at a very well-known passage when it comes to Christmas. Isaiah chapter 8, verse 21 through Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7. Isaiah writes, they will pass through the land. He's talking about people who are walking in darkness before Jesus. They will pass through the land, greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, everyone say, but behold, behold. distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, they will be thrust into thick darkness. Verse one of chapter nine says, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made the glorious, he has made glorious the way of the sea. The land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walk in darkness have seen a great light. Everyone say great light. light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. Every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us, everyone say to us. us. A child is born and to us a son is given. What I want to do this morning is I want to look at these two chapters under two headings. We're going to begin this morning by looking at the severity of the darkness, and then we are going to conclude by looking at the necessity of the light. But the reason why we are starting with the severity of the darkness is because if you don't understand how severe the darkness is, then you won't ever see how necessary the light is. In this passage, Isaiah, before he prescribes the light, He first diagnoses the darkness. And he says that for those who are walking in darkness, there are certain symptoms that reveal to you if you are someone who is walking in darkness. Here are the three symptoms of people who walk in darkness. The first symptom is your conduct. The second symptom of someone who walks in darkness is their condition. And then the third symptom is their confidence. So we're going to work our way through these symptoms. The first symptom, according to Isaiah, is your conduct. Look what he says in verse 2 of chapter 9. He says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Isaiah, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is informing you, and he's informing me, that one of the symptoms of an individual who is living in darkness is their conduct. And the reason why we know that he's getting after the conduct is because the word there walked in the Hebrew, it means to be going down a particular path again and again and again and again. So it's not a path that you went through went down once, but it's a path that you continually go down again and again. And then the word dwelt there, it literally means to live somewhere. It means to reside somewhere. So to take a word from the New Testament, it means to abide somewhere. So Isaiah says that one of the ways that you and I can know if we are walking in darkness, if we are people who've been in darkness, is by looking at our walk and by looking at our dwelling. Where do we walk and where do we dwell? Now, what's interesting is that in the passage, he uses this, this phrase that is written differently in this passage, but it says those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness darkness. That, that phrase there, deep darkness, really what it, what it means there in Hebrew is the valley of the shadow of death. It's the same Hebrew word that King David uses in Psalm 23, that you and I, we walk in the valley of the shadow of death. And get this, if you're sitting here this morning and you're a Christian and you're thinking, well, he can't be talking to me because I've already believed in Jesus. Well, guess what? Christians can walk in darkness just as much as non-Christians can. And one of the things that breaks my heart, if I'm being honest, and I'm being honest about just my issue, not just yours, is that it breaks my heart when Christians not only walk in the same darkness as non-Christians, they have the same fears, but they have the same concerns and they look towards the same solutions. And we act like if Jesus never showed up. One of the ways that you can tell this Christmas season, if you are in darkness or not, Isaiah says, is by looking at your conduct. And here's the thing. The word there, darkness, in the Hebrew, when we think of dark, we just think of the lights being off. But in Scripture, dark has way more meaning than that. The the word there, darkness, it means something hidden, almost always something evil, something sinful. The darkness that the Bible is talking to us about here, you arrive in that darkness through ignorance or arrogance. And so some of you here this morning, you're sitting here and the reason why you are in darkness is because you are ignorant. You didn't even know that you were in darkness. But some of you, you grew up in church. Maybe this is your first time back in a long, long time. Maybe you came here because your your, your family dragged you here for the holidays. So if you find yourself in darkness this morning, the question that you gotta ask yourself is what brought me to that place of darkness? Ignorance or arrogance? And if I'm being honest, I would say that I struggle with both. In some areas of my life, there's still darkness because of ignorance, I just don't know better. But I would argue that for the majority of my life where there's darkness, it's arrogance. I know better, I just, I don't care. That's how darkness works. The first symptom of people who are in darkness is their conduct. By looking at your external conduct. Now, the second way, the second symptom that Isaiah says we display when we are people who are walking in darkness is not just our conduct, it's our condition. Look what he says here. It says, they will pass through the land, greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And it says, it says and they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. So the second symptom that you and I display if we are walking in darkness is our condition. Here's what's just fascinating about the Hebrew there. The, the, the word there, gloom, it means to be depressed. It means to be sad. It means to be discouraged and dejected. So the word gloom there means. And then the word there, distress, I found this fascinating. It means to be prideful, to be stiff-necked, to be hard-hearted. So get this. These people that were in darkness were not only sad and discouraged and depressed, gloom, but instead of going to God with it, it says that they were prideful. They were stiff-necked. They were stubborn. They refused to look to God. But what the word gloom and the word distress teach us, is that not only did they have an external problem, conduct, but they had an internal problem, condition. If you're sitting here, Christian or not, and you have darkness in your life, one of the ways you can tell is not just by your external conduct, but by your internal condition. The reason why this idea of the darkness not just being external, but internal, is so important for us today is because the world around us is really good at saying there's darkness out there. But here's what the world is really, really bad at. They can never admit that there's darkness within them. And here's why. Listen, follow me here. If they admit that the darkness is not just outside of them, but inside of them, then there's no answer. There's no solution because there's no God in their mind. And so the world is very quick to admit the darkness out there, but very slow to admit the darkness in here. It doesn't matter if you're listening to Oprah or Tony Robbins or whoever your, your person to listen to is. The solution is always, you got to look inside. There's a hero inside of you. You got this self-improvement, self-focus, self-esteem. See, the world is quick to admit the external problem, but it cannot admit the internal problem because if there's an external and internal problem, then there's no hope. But you know what's really sad? The church does the same exact thing. We're quick to say there's darkness out there. And so the Republicans say that the darkness is the Democrats. And the Democrats say that the darkness is the Republicans. And the poor say that the darkness is the rich. And the rich say that the darkness is the poor. And the blacks say that the darkness is the white. And the whites say that the darkness is the blacks. And what happens is we come into church, we're all okay with admitting the darkness out there, but nobody can admit the darkness in here. And what breaks my heart is in the place where we are supposed to be the most vulnerable, the most authentic, the most honest, everyone's got a mask on. Because we don't actually believe the gospel, we're actually believing religion. And so when people get up here and every week they tell you, here's how to fix your marriage, and here's how to manage your money, and here's how to do this. What I'm assuming when I preach like that which I don't, but if I did, what I'm assuming is that the darkness is out there and the solution is in here, but it's not. And so it breaks my heart when we come to church and we're wearing masks and we're trying to cover up our inner darkness, when if the gospel is true, we should come here and say, listen, not only is it dark out there, but it's way worse in here. So condition, is one of the ways you can tell. And one of the things that the church is accused of, that the world looks at the church and says, Oh, you guys are just blind optimists. Everything's just sunshine and rainbows, and you guys just don't embrace the darkness, the reality, the world around you. Well, here's what's crazy. According to scripture, the best worldview when it comes to dealing with darkness is Christianity. Because it's the only worldview that admits both external darkness and internal darkness. The world can only admit the external, but in Jesus we can admit both. Because we're not the answer he is. We're not the solution he is. First symptom is our conduct. The second symptom is our condition. And the last symptom that someone who's walking in darkness displays is their confidence. I'm going to reread verses 21 through 22. It says, they will pass through the land, greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, they will be thrust into thick darkness so don't miss this guys the third symptom of someone who is walking in darkness is they look up but their confidence isn't up there in the passage it says that they look up not to place their confidence in god but get this to curse him and then after they look up to curse god then they look to the earth to find their confidence on the earth One of the ways that you know, if you're walking in darkness this morning, is where is your confidence found this morning? Is it found in Jesus or is it found in your bank account? Is it found in Jesus or is it found in your spouse? Is it found in Jesus or is it found in your kids? Where is your confidence found this morning? And here's what's crazy. When you look at that word, it says that they look upward to God, not to call out to him, but to curse him. And it was crazy is that the word there contemptuously, it means to curse. And and I thought that, because this is what we usually think when we think of the word curse, we think that curse means to to be angry at someone, to, to condemn someone, right? But what's so fascinating about that word in the Hebrew is that the word there curse, it means to minimize something. It means to lower your view of something. It means to see something as insignificance. So get this, the way you know if your confidence is in God or not, the way you know if you've cursed God or not, is not if you're angry at him, if not, is not if you're furious at him, is not, if you, is, not, is not if you hate him, the way you know is if you've belittled him, if you've lowered your view of him, if God is inconsequential in your life. That's how you know. And so if you're sitting here, this is your first time back to church in weeks or months or years, and you're thinking, well, I haven't thought about Jesus since last Sunday. Well, it's probably because you've cursed him in your heart. You've made him so small, so insignificant. He's so, so, so little, no weightiness in your life at all, that no wonder you haven't thought about him since last Sunday or last Christmas or last Easter. That's actually the proof that you've cursed him in your heart. so if you've been coming to church and you're only coming to church because your parents are bringing you, or you're only coming to church because we're in the South and being a churchgoer is cool. If you're only coming to church because you're trying to do someone a favor in your family and you're like, I'm not angry at God. I haven't cursed God. Well, if, if God is insignificant, if God has been belittled, if God has been made so small, he has no impact on your life, then that's exactly what you've done. You've cursed him and don't even know it. That's a scary place to be. And then it says, that once you curse God, it says in the passage that they look up to curse God and then they look down to find their confidence on the earth. You know how many people here this morning are placing their confidence in the government? Man, if we could just get the right politician, everything's going to be better. And in some people, you don't place your confidence in the government, you place your confidence in the economy. And as long as the stocks are good, you're good. Some of you, instead of placing your confidence in the government or the economy, uh, you place it in education. If we could just train up the next generation, degrees. Not deliverance degrees is what they need. Or technology, man, we just need better, man, technology is going to fix and take us to that place that we can't get to by ourselves. Once you curse God, you will find your confidence in things that are infinitely smaller than him. The reason why, like I said, I began with the severity of the darkness is because it's only once we see the severity of the darkness that we can embrace the necessity of the light. And when we look at this passage, Isaiah, he he transitions from the darkness to the darkness. Light. And here's what's beautiful about this passage. In response to our multifaceted darkness, God provides a multifaceted light. We know in light of scripture that the light that God sends, spoiler alert, was Jesus. The light was a person, and his name is Jesus Christ. And here's the thing, guys. Three things that we need to know this Christmas season about this light. The first thing that I need you to know is that this light is personal. It says a child is born. So he was human. This light was human. A child is born. Then later on, it describes him as a wonderful counselor. I don't know what darkness looks like in your life right now. I don't know what you are going through. I don't know what season you are in, but here's the beautiful thing about having a personal light. Here's what's incredible about this this savior, this, this light, is that he is so personal that not only is he willing to walk into the greatest darkness, which is your sin, But if he was willing to walk in the greatest darkness, then he's also willing to walk into your lesser darkness. Whatever darkness you are experiencing during this Christmas season, maybe it's the darkness of divorce. Maybe it's the darkness of depression. Maybe it's the darkness of death. Maybe it's the darkness of of singleness, of of loneliness, The, the darkness of infertility, the darkness of addiction. Whatever darkness you are walking in today, we have a savior, we have a light That is good enough. He is personal enough, not just to step into your greatest darkness, but also into your lesser darkness. But not only is he personal, he is also powerful. In the passage, it says that a light has dawned. And then later on, it says that a son is given. And then after that, it says that he is a mighty God. Not only is he personal, but he's powerful. So here's why this is good news. Because he's personal, he can relate to you but because he's powerful, he can redeem you. You see, a human counselor can relate to you, but only a mighty God can redeem you. The one who relates is the same one who redeems. He's not only personal, but he's powerful, and he is so powerful that he gives you what you could not find in your own strength. Don't miss this, in the passage it says that a light has dawned, a light has shone. Why is that important? Because you see the power and the grace of God in that word. It doesn't say that a light was produced. It doesn't say that a light was manufactured. It doesn't say that a light was fabricated. It doesn't say that a light was plugged in. It doesn't say that a light was generated. It says a light has dawned. It didn't come from here. It came from out there. He is stronger and he is bigger and he is greater. And he is more powerful than our situation. Not only does it say that a light has dawned, it says that a son has been given. So a child is born shows us his humanity. A son is given shows us his divinity. He was there before even he even showed up, he already existed. It says that a son is, is given. It doesn't say that a son is, is earned. It doesn't say that a son is achieved. It doesn't say that a son is purchased. It doesn't say that a son is bought. It says that a son is given. It is all grace, and it's his power seen, not ours. If he is powerful, then what that tells us, don't miss this, it tells us that Jesus Christ, the light of the world, he is powerful enough to bring light into your darkness. He is powerful enough to bring life into your deadness. He is powerful enough to bring beauty into your brokenness. He is powerful enough to bring hope into your hopelessness. That's crazy! Come on! That's crazy, guys! Do you realize how crazy that is? I don't think you realize that. And that if it's true that he's all powerful and we are all broken and all weak, then it means that Jesus Christ, he didn't come to lend a hand. He came to be your hero. He didn't come to be a resource. He came to be your rescue. He didn't come to, to, to be A-like. He came to be the light. He didn't come to be your life coach. He came to be your life. That's what that means. That's what that means. And once we understand that, that true power, where true power comes from, that true power comes from the light, not a light, but it comes from, from Jesus Christ, the light of the world. Once you understand where true power comes from, then all of a sudden you no longer look to the government. You no longer look to education. You no longer look to the economy. You no longer look to the technology because everything you need has already been given to you at the cross of Jesus Christ. He is powerful. And the last thing he is, is he is a provider. Jesus Christ is a provider. Well, how do we know? It says here in the text, and this is a part that people read right past, but you missed it. If you read past this, you don't get it. Because it says in verse 1, it says, But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of of Naphtali. But in the later time, in latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, the Galilee of the nations. And then later on he talks about you have multiplied the nation, you have increased his joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. As they, they are glad when they divide the spoil for the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor you have broken is on the day of Midian for every boot of the tramping soul warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Don't miss it, guys. Don't miss this. Jesus Christ is the provider, and it's so quick for us to read right past the fact that it brings up Zebulun and Naphtali, but here's why we can't just read right past this. Anyone who knows the geography of Israel knows that the two tribes that were at the most northern part of Israel were Zebulun and Naphtali, but because they were at the outer edge of Israel, it was the place where most Gentiles lived. It was the place where Gentiles would come in and intermarry with the Jews there, and so because of the intermarriage, it was the place that was most looked down upon, Out of all the tribes, all the other tribes looked down on the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali. And so the Romans, they looked down on the Jews, and the Jews would look down on Zebulun and Naphtali. The only way Assyria could attack was through the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. But what's so beautiful about the gospel, what's so crazy about Jesus is that he is such a provision. He is such a provider that he shows up in the very place where the enemy attacked He shows up in the place where they were most exposed. He shows up to the lowest of people, to the poorest of people, to the most broken, to the most looked down upon. He shows up to those people. That's why he's our provider, because whatever area in your life is the Zebulun and Naphtali, whatever area you are most exposed in, whatever area the enemy is most attacking you in, that's exactly where Jesus shows up. Think about that. That's where he shows up, and that's one of the things that gets me. It describes him as a prince of peace, but what's so fascinating is that commentators don't know what to do with it. The fact that he's described as a prince of peace makes no sense in the Hebrew language because prince was a military officer, and then peace was peace, and so it was so ironic. It was such an oxymoron for there to be a military officer bringing a message of peace. Same thing that we see in the New Testament. In the New Testament, it says a host of angels, they sing a song of peace over the shepherds. But what's crazy is that the word their host, is an army. So in the New Testament, you have an army singing a song of peace. In the Old Testament, you have a military officer bringing a message of peace. Guys, you you gotta think about this. Because what we see is that we see both what we deserve and what we don't deserve in one title. What we deserve is that he's a prince and he should destroy us because he's a military officer. And then in the word peace, we see what we don't deserve. That's the beauty of the gospel. We see the heights of his law that we can't reach. But then even higher than that is the heights of his grace that he reached for us. Guys, think about this. At the cross, at the cross, the prince of peace, he fought the war so that we might get a victory. At the cross, he was thrust into darkness so that we might be brought into light. At the cross, he was rejected so that we might be accepted. It's crazy. At the cross, Jesus Christ, he calls out to heaven. In the passage, it says that these people, they look up to heaven to condemn God. At the cross, Jesus Christ, the only person who didn't deserve to be condemned. At the cross, he looks up to heaven not to curse God, but to call out to God. He says, help me. And then what it, and it, and it was crazy is that instead of getting an answer, the Father stays silent. And so he has to say, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus looks up to heaven not to curse, but to call out. And God didn't answer him so that one day he can answer you. That'll change your Christmas. That'll change your Christmas.
1: Thanks for listening to this Christmas edition of Mid-South Viewpoint. You've been listening to Pastor Will Franco from Mission Church here in Memphis. If you would like to know more about the ministry of Mission Church, visit missionchurchmemphis.com. I'm Byron Tyler and hope you have a very Merry Christmas.